telling of David and his epic battle against the giant named Goliath. I believe as the crowd gathered that day, they probably had the same morbid curiosity that we do when we pass a traffic accident on the freeway. I don't believe anybody was watching to see how David was going to defeat this giant. Rather, they were watching to see how badly David would be defeated. Maybe they were wondering, is Goliath going to kill David with his spear, his 37-pound spear? Or, or maybe Goliath will kill David with his sword. He'll chop him. Some thought perhaps Goliath, he'll just, he'll just rush David and then he'll stomp him. Everybody thought that Goliath would win. He was the obvious hands-on favorite in the battle. The thought of David defeating this behemoth of a man was unimaginable. But that's exactly what happened that day. You know, I think that uh, we've all had people in our lives that have looked our way. Not in the hopes of seeing the good, not in the hopes of seeing us overcome and win as David did, but watching to see how badly we'll be defeated in life. Not believing in what it is that we can do or what we can become through the power of Christ. We all, know, we all know how that feels. But I want you to hear me today. I think all of you here, and I know that I've had occasions like this, where I've looked in the mirror and I've seen the same me that my critics have observed. I know what it is to look in the mirror and wonder if the giant in my life will fall. You wonder, do I have the resources needed? Am I intelligent enough? Am I strong enough? Am I, am I uh, creative enough? And, and I think we've had times in all of our lives where those observing us, and even as we look within, we have these occasions where we wonder, will the giant fall? Will the victory come? Will this be a turning point in life? And I want you to know God loves us enough that he recorded and preserved this true life accounting of David and his victory over Goliath so we all could be reminded that giants can fall. And uh, I believe we can be encouraged by this today. Now, if you're familiar with this Bible story, don't let your familiarity rob you of the blessing that God can share with you through this study today. Uh, I've been through the story of David and Goliath many times in my lifetime. I've taught through this several times to our church family, but I can promise you there are some fresh truths that the Lord has shared with me in the course of study that I've been so excited to share with you today. Here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that if we get engaged in this study, we'll find truths in this passage that can help us to see victories in our life that heretofore we have not seen. I believe this service has that capacity today. And I believe that if you'll believe that, we can work together and God can teach us. So if you'd be so kind today, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing as we look to the text together. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where we'll be today. 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we're going to begin reading in verse 41. 1 Samuel 17 and 41. Where the Bible says, And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Bible tells us a lot about what Goliath saw when he saw David. He saw this one who was a youth. He was just a teenager, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 17 years of age. And the Bible makes that clear. Then the Bible says he was ruddy. Um, that expression, maybe we'd say baby-faced. It means to have red, redness in the cheeks like a baby would. And so Goliath, this, this giant of a man, is looking at David and he sees really a teenager who's baby-faced. And, and then at the end, the Bible says he was of a fair countenance. And that might be said in our vernacular, he was a pretty boy. Now he grew out of that, but at the time, that's what Goliath saw. He saw this young teenager with a childlike complexion who was a little bit of a pretty boy in his way of seeing things. And of course, big tough guys don't have much time for pretty boys, you know. And so in verse 43, the Bible goes on, and the Philistines said unto David, Am I a dog? He's insulted. 
that this boy would approach him, okay? Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David, the Bible says, said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me, Goliath, you big giant of a man. I put those words in there. But he said, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. And I really believe David's pointing out here, Hey, look, tough guy, you're the one with all the ammo, okay? You're the guy with all the stuff. Your, your shield is so big, Goliath, you need a guy to walk in front of you and carry it for you. So you come to me with all this stuff, a, a sword, a spear, and with a shield. And then David said this, But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And I appreciate the way David said, the God of the armies of Israel, you know, the ones you defied. Because for David, this was bigger than a national issue. It wasn't about the armies per se. It was about the God of the armies that had been defied. Verse 46, David says, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And that's always a tough thing to take from someone, you know. They don't like to give it up very easily. He said, I'm going to take your head, Goliath. And I'll give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day into the fowls of the air and to the wild beast of the earth. And I believe these next words, if David had a purpose statement for his life, the next words, I believe, would serve as that purpose statement. He said that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. That's what it was all about for David, that all the earth would know. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. It came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the enemy to meet the Philistine. Brother Ryan pointed this out to me, but it's a great thought. He ran to the enemy. I've wasted more than a little bit of time in my life running from enemies, running from giants. When you have a heart of a champion, the heart like David had, he ran to the battle. And you've got to love that spirit. Verse 49, David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it. That's a Tennessee word right there, slang, okay? He slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. And I could read on, but you get a great picture of what happened that day in that place. I want you to go back to the beginning of verse 50. And there's a statement that just kind of captured my heart as I was looking to this text. And, and the statement says this in the beginning of verse 50. So David prevailed. In other words, I just told you how David prevailed. And I think the how in this text is as important as the what in the what he did. And I want us to think of this today. How did David prevail? And uh, I believe the Lord can encourage our hearts. Let's go to the Lord in prayer at this time. Our Father, thank you for this day, the occasion that is ours to learn and to grow. And Lord, we need your help. We need you to open our eyes so that we can see spiritually those things you'd have us to see. Lord, I love you today, and I'm grateful that you're a God that has such great power that not only you can bring down giants, but you can work in our lives 
in such a way that we, through your power, for your glory, and by your grace, can bring the giants down before us. May this service be a moment, a moment in the lives of people where we begin to see uh, things a little differently. Help us, we pray, dear Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the day began like most others for David in the field with his father's sheep, watching over the flocks and herds and doing the things that he'd been asked to do. But then word from his father, Jesse, comes that he needed to send David on an errand. He needed for David to leave the herds there and the flocks and to take his brothers who were in the army of Israel some food. And that wasn't uncommon. It was quite ordinary for families to provide the food of, of the ones that had gone to serve in the military. And so David agreed and, and off he went. He got an early start and before leaving the area, the Bible is very careful to help us understand that he took care of all his responsibilities. He made sure the bases, so to speak, were covered. As he went there, he, he saw something that was quite interesting. He saw the army of Israel in a standoff with the army of the Philistines. Lisa and I had the opportunity some time ago to visit the site of this battle, the Valley of Elah, and it's a beautiful area. It's uh, tree-lined hills on either side of this very fertile valley that now is a place where farming is done. And, and when David arrived to the valley, the armies there were, were squaring off one with another on either side, but then he, he noticed something that he had to have noticed. It was the most obvious thing taking place. A giant of a man came into the midst of the valley. And this Philistine giant, whom the Bible calls Goliath, begins to taunt the, the Israelites. This man was amazingly huge. He was enormous. He was above nine feet tall, perhaps nine feet six inches tall. And, and his armament was unbelievable. As I said a moment ago, his spear was 37 pounds. I can't imagine chucking that across a battlefield at anybody. But his spear alone weighed 37 pounds. People have speculated, and I think there's some evidence to suggest that this is accurate, that Goliath's armament and, and uh, his weaponry gave quite a story in and of itself. People have speculated as to the sword that Goliath had. And many people believe that Goliath used a sword that wasn't traditional for the Philistine armies. It was a Canaanite sword. And if that is the case, and again, this is just interesting to me, if that is the case, what that represented was this giant of a man saying by his weaponry, I've defeated the Canaanites. This is the sword they used. I beat them. I took it from them. And this is evidence of my strength. The type of armament that Goliath wore is, is detailed quite clearly in Scripture. And, and we know that that was not the type of armament that Philistine warriors would have put on for battle. It was the type of armor you would have found in the area known as Greece. It was that type of armament that would have covered the legs and really every part of Goliath's body with the exception of his forehead, David noticed that, but every area of Goliath's body was covered and with the armament that Goliath wore, it would have been his way of saying, I beat the Greeks, I, I've taken the best of what they had to offer. And with his, with his, with his uh, outfit, with his sword, if it indeed were a Canaanite sword, here's what could have been observed just by looking at Goliath. This man is the undisputed, undefeated heavyweight of the entire world. He fought the greatest and he'd won. And here he stands in a valley and David observes as he, as he taunts the, the God of the armies of the Israelites. As he came, the Bible tells us that he did what he did each day. And in 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 to 10, the Bible says that Goliath, he stood and he cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul, Saul was the king of Israel, he said, choose you a man for you, 
and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then ye shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And so David's arrived on the scene as Goliath comes out to make his daily appearance and to offer this, this uh, uh, battle. And I'm sure David began to think, I wonder who's going to step out and fight him. I mean, our army's here. Surely someone will do something. I'm not the only one who takes note of what's going on here. I wonder who's going to do something. I wonder who's going to stand up. I, I wonder who's going to engage in conflict. I wonder who's going to be willing to put themselves in a position to encounter this man. And in the midst of this passage of Scripture, David asked a rhetorical question almost as much to himself as to anyone else. As he's observing all of this go down, David says this, Is there not a cause? He's asking rhetorically, I mean, really, guys, is there nothing worth living for? Is there nothing so sacred, so wonderful, so big in your life that it would be worth even perhaps dying for if needs be? Is there not a cause? Why would no one stand up? Why would no one confront this this man? Why isn't anybody doing anything? David had a heart that was compelled to do something. After a conversation with the king and some of his men, David approached the giant and And you just can't beat the Bible's description for this moment, so I'll let the Bible speak for itself. In 1 Samuel 17 and verse 40, the Bible says that he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a scrip, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. As you can imagine, David's drawing near Goliath. His knees are not shaking. He's not trembling. He's not intimidated. He's not afraid. He sees this teenager with a baby face coming to him. And, and uh, all he's thinking is, is uh, I can't believe that out of all that army, they'd send this boy to me. First Samuel 17, verses 42 through 44 says this. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. The Philistine said unto David, Am, am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I'll give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now at this point, if I were David, I'd have been looking for the exits. I'd have been thinking, oh no. He was angry in general, but specifically, this guy's now mad at me. He singled me out. He let me know what's going to be in it for me if I enter into a conflict with him. Uh, we're not going to just fight and then you know, cry uncle at some point. We're not just going to uh, fight until a standoff. If we get into a fight, he's already told me what's in it for me if I lose this battle. The birds are going to be eating my flesh. The wild beasts are going to be eating me. This is not going to go good. If, if I were David about this point, I'd have been looking what's the quickest I can get into the forest and make my way home. But that's not the heart of a champion. That wasn't the heart of David. With a great heart of faith in 1 Samuel 17, verses 45 and 46, David said to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I'll smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I'll give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beast of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." I love the way David was careful to point out that a victory would be by the power of God in his life. 
None of this was done by David to get in the history books, much less be recorded in God's eternal word. You know, heaven and earth will pass away, but, but God's word won't, the Bible tells us. And, and yet we don't find in David any hint of his desire to make a name for himself, to become famous in the process of all of this. That just wasn't what it was about for him. He was consumed with the fact that someone just had to do something. And David was not concerned about his name. He had great concern for the reputation of his God. And he wanted it to be done, the Bible says, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. The rest, as we say, is history. David stepped up, placed a stone in his slingshot. He let it go. The giant fell. He won the battle. It was not a lucky shot. It was a shot that had been crafted over years of practicing in the wilderness as he cared for his father's flocks. But more than that, it was a shot that was sovereignly guided by God's hand to the exact spot that it was intended. It was a miracle. David won the victory. Now we know what happened. Perhaps you knew what happened in the battle of David and Goliath before you walked in this morning. But more than what happened, I want us to see how did this happen I want us to see what went into that which was done. We know what David did, but what was in his life that brought him to such a victory? And I want you to have your outline available today as we begin this study, because we find some encouraging thoughts in this narrative. And as as we look, we're going to discern that David was willing to serve. That was the first element I see in his life, that David was willing to serve. The uh, news of David's victory... This blockbuster victory, it began to spread like wildfire. And everybody was talking about it. In fact, uh, the, the ladies of that day and age and space had made songs up about it already. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 18 and verse 7, the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul, that was the king, hath slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. That was the number one song in the land. It was on all the radio stations. It was top of the charts. Everybody was singing the praises of David. They said, Saul, our king, well, he's slain his thousands. But David, man, he's slain his ten thousands. All the girls are singing this song, you know. And, and I'm sure David is catching wind of what it is that's going on. And, and here he is. He's, he's finding all this fame that has come into his life. But I believe had you asked David, David, whatever put you in a position to fight a giant, whatever brought you to a place where you had this opportunity, David, if there were one single element in your life that provided you this occasion, what would it be? I believe David would honestly reply, well, all I was doing is what I was told. I was being a servant. My dad told me to watch the sheep, so I watched the sheep. And then he told me to take some food to my brothers. And when I got there, I saw Goliath. And and then all I was doing was trying to serve. We find in David the heart of a servant. A lot of people would like to be known for bringing down the giants in their lives. But what I want you to understand today is It happened a long time before David got before Goliath. That heart of a champion was developed a long time before he entered the valley of Elah and see this beast of a man defying the God of the armies of Israel. As we see in this text, David served his father by keeping the sheep. He served his brothers by taking them food. He served the king as they spoke. He served his nation by stepping up in a time of need. David did not posture or maneuver or politic his way to fame. He wasn't networking his way to get a name for himself. He simply was a servant. As David continued to serve God with his life, fame came his way. It came. The, the Bible says in 1 Chronicles 14, 17, And the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Fame did come into his life, but the thought is this. It was never his goal. 
David wasn't like so many in our day who are famous just for being famous. They don't know anything. They can't really do anything, just famous for being famous. David did have fame that came to his life, but that was never his goal. It was never his purpose nor his objective. He just said, I want to be a servant. Oh, listen, would to God we would live a life that allows others to see God's work through our service. And this is really the message of Jesus Christ. He taught us that the way up in life is to go down. He taught us that real leadership in life is not found in how many people serve you. That's the world's model. He shares with us that real leadership in life is found in how we serve others. Mark 9 and 35, the Bible tells that Jesus sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Jesus was saying a lot of people talk about being number one. He said, let me help you understand from heaven's perspective what it's about to be a winner, to be a champion. It's seen in how you serve, how you serve other people. There are some great examples of this in Scripture. But my mind often goes back to James in the New Testament. James wrote the epistle of James. James, the half-brother of Christ. As he wrote the book of James, he took time in the very beginning to introduce himself. Had I been James... Uh, I would have come up with quite an introduction. Had I written the introduction to to the epistle of James, I I probably would have said, James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. That's right, there's a family connection. The pastor of the greatest church in all of the world, he was the lead pastor in the church of Jerusalem. I, I would have had a lot of good things to say. I would have said, I witness to the great miracles of Jesus Christ. Yes, that James. But let me tell you how James introduces himself In that great book of the Bible, James, a servant of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. How humble. James said, you know, there are a lot of things that maybe you could know about me, but let me share with you the thing that is most important in God's estimation. A servant. A servant. I'm just a servant. A large group of European pastors came to one of D.L. Moody's Northfield Bible Conferences in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. Following the European custom of the time, each guest would go to his room at night and leave his shoes outside in the hallway. And the European custom was the, the hall servant would come and collect all the shoes that evening, clean all the shoes, replace them. And in the morning, when, when you'd go out into the hallway, the hotel, your shoes would be clean, polished up, ready to go, and, and off you went. And, and as D.L. Moody was walking down the hallway, the corridor of that place, he noticed all these shoes. But he, he knew in the United States, there's no hall servant. There was no such custom. Yet he didn't want his guests from Europe who'd come all this way to be embarrassed. And so he suggested to a couple ministerial students, Bible college students, that maybe they should pick up the shoes from these guests from Europe and clean them up and put them back so they'd be ready in the morning. But all these Bible college students began to come up with excuses why they couldn't do that. And there was really an air, a sense that, you want me to polish shoes? Are you kidding me? The story says that D.L. Moody picked those shoes up himself and went back to his room and began to polish and clean them and... No one would have ever known that, but one of his associates that night came by, saw the light on under the door, and and decided he'd talk with uh, D.L. Moody for a few moments and saw all these shoes, and he explained to him what had happened and what he was doing. The story goes the rest of the week, people were literally uh, just about arguing amongst themselves to get the privilege to clean the shoes of these European guests, And, and I think it's so interesting to me that the only famous evangelist in all of the world in that moment, the, the, the most well-known evangelist in the world, D.L. Moody was the kind of a man that 
with anonymity, would walk down a corridor, see shoes of guests, and find a way to serve people. Humble. Just willing to help. You see, that's the heart of it all. That, that's where it begins for a champion. A heart that's willing to serve. Self, selfless, not self-serving. And when God is looking for someone through whom He can take out a giant, He's always looking for a servant. Not an arrogant person, because pride precedes a fall. It's the humble that are exalted. In Luke 16 and verse 10, Jesus says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. As you seek to motivate or encourage people in a family or a work setting, sometimes you'll see someone that's struggling and not getting it done, and you think maybe if they had a bigger opportunity, a bigger platform, they would do better. And Jesus is saying, in effect, no, that's not the case at all. Because he that is faithful in the little things, he's the same guy who's faithful in the big things. And the guy that's not faithful in the little things, he's not going to be faithful in the big things either because his heart is just not faithful. It's all about a heart that's willing to say nothing's beneath me or below me. I want to serve. I want to help. I want to do what I can. Oh, listen, don't give uh, someone the big job thinking they'll serve in the big things. Oh, no, we need to say, Lord, there's no task too small for me. The heart of a servant is where it all begins, and that's where it began with David. He was willing to serve. But as we continue our study today, we see that David was willing to stand, to stand. Now, David realized that there are some causes in life that are so great that a stand must be made. But I want you to understand today that this was not a popular stand. Look here, David stood alone, not one other person with him. He stood alone because it was not a popular stand. It was not an easy stand. It could have cost him his life. It was not an endearing stand. Even his brothers, his family criticized him for making this stand. But it was a stand that he made because it was the right thing to do in that situation. You know, the modus operandi of our time seems to be capitulating if pressed. And I think one thing that really is nauseating to all of us about politicians in general is the fact that it's hard to find a politician who will stand for anything for any length of time. Because they test the political winds of change, and whatever's expedient, they'll adapt that position to gain voters to themselves, to get more power, whatever it is. And, and many times it's very discouraging to us when we're looking for a leader in whom we can have some type of confidence, and they'll change their position, and, and, and they're looking for the expedient, they're looking for the easy, they base their position on what is practical for them and their advancement. And I want you to know the heart of a champion is not that way at all. And I'm not saying all politicians are that way, but in general, that's why uh, the congressional uh, rating is always in the you know like in the teens or even lower at times David was the kind of guy that said you know I want to do right because it's right I'm not going to do right so I can get ahead I'm not going to do right to win friends and influence people I'm going to do right because right is the right thing to do think of that there are going to be people that show great tolerance for the most degenerate behaviors in a society but there seems to be very little tolerance for people who stand on principle and church family to that I say stand anyhow Hear me today, I want you to understand this. All of the world can be wrong on any issue. We don't have to go back very far in the past to have the brightest minds in all of the world tell you that our earth is flat and that you're an ignoramus if you think differently. You find what's right from the Word of God and with the humble heart of a servant, you stand. You stand. You see, that's where, where David came in his life. 
I can't believe that this guy's saying this stuff. Nobody's doing anything. Somebody, somebody needs to do something. There's a saying that I, I like. It's, it's related to business so often, but the statement says, reasonable people adapt themselves to the world and unreasonable people seek to adapt the world to themselves. Therefore, all progress depends on unreasonable people. Unreasonable people. As Christians, we're more interested in adapting ourselves to the truth of God's word. And that will sometimes make people of faith appear to be unreasonable. Somebody could say, wait a minute, let me get this straight. You believe the Bible is inspired of God? It's infallible? It's inerrant? You really believe this? That's unreasonable. There's some that would say that's, that's an unreasonable position. Some would say, well, wait a minute, you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way into a relationship with God and the only way to have eternity in heaven with Him? You believe that Jesus Christ really is the way, the truth, and the life? That, that to many today seems unreasonable. There are some who would say, wait a minute, you take your moral cues from a book of antiquity? That's unreasonable, some would say. And friends, I want you to know it may be deemed unreasonable, but to this I say, stand. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 and verse 13 says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. In Philippians 4 and verse 1, he said it this way, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. The expression stand fast means to hold your ground. It's the idea of not giving an inch. It's the idea of not caving in. Listen, friends, I want you to know there are times in life when we're pressed, we're giving in or shutting up or standing down seems reasonable. But there needs to be people based on Scripture, based on biblical principles that say, I'm going to stand my ground, I'm not going to give an inch. Now, I'm all for compromise. If, if you're married and the guy likes it 72 and the wife likes it 74, I think 73 is a reasonable compromise. Okay, There are areas in life where I think compromise is the way to go. But I'm saying when it comes to the truth of God's Word, we need some, some folks who will be people of character who will say, I'm not going to base my stand in life on where everyone else is standing. I'm going to take my cues in life from the Lord. Now, that's not as easy as it sounds. Now, I'm going to make a few comments, and, and let's, we, won't, we won't have any feedback in this, this exact moment, because I just want to make a point. There are times as a pastor where I know I'm going to approach a controversial issue in the course of a message, and I know that in a given moment, perhaps half the people will not appreciate what it is I'm having to say. And I know those doors work both ways. Folks can just as easily leave. Now, if I only preached on controversial issues, that would make me a crabby pastor. And nobody likes crabby pastors, especially pastors' wives. But just for an example, and I want you to understand this, so just listen to what I'm about to say. I know that in the course of preaching God's Word, I'm going to come up to issues that may be political hot topics of the day, but they're biblical issues. And I know there are going to be occasions, just hear me out, 
There are going to be occasions where I'll say things, for example, that the Bible teaches that life begins with conception. Therefore, abortion would be snuffing out a life that was ordained by God, and I see that to be something other than an honorable thing. Now, God is a gracious God and a God of forgiveness, and there are people undoubtedly in this room today, you've been down that road, and maybe you have a heart of regrets, and God loves you. I'm not judging anybody, but there are times where I'll say, based on the Word of God, I've got to take a stand on this issue. And I know about half the people living in our area would say, I don't appreciate your position, but listen, I can't can't avoid a topic that God addresses in Scripture in the hopes that I can stay as far away from anything that is deemed as controversial so that I can be pleasing to more people. That's called being a coward. You say, well, Pastor, you want people to not like what you have to say? Of course not. What are you, crazy? I, I mean, I don't want to be the guy that nobody likes or half the people don't like. Not at all. But I want to have a heart that says, God, I'm more interested in what, what you have to think about what I have to say. You know, there are going to be times where society is going to change and we're redefining the very definition of family as given to us by God. And again, God loves everybody and I'm not condemning or judging anybody, but there will be times in the course of studying the Word of God where I'll need to say things like, although it may be legal in the land in which we're living, God does not condone the act of homosexuality and the fact that two people of the same sex uh, uh, can, can get married with some government sanction. It may make it all right in the eyes of some politician, again, who are testing the winds of change. They ch- Have you noticed they can change their position on these issues? And there are times where God will bring us to the point where a stand needs to be made on a certain issue. Now, if you have a bad attitude, that's a different issue altogether. I'm talking about our convictions may go high. I hope our compassion will go just as deep. I'm not talking about being angry or mean or any of those types of things, but God's going to bring occasions in your life where maybe you're not alone on a platform looking at a bunch of people, half of whom think what you just said is completely out of step with the times. But you're going to have occasions in your life where God's going to put you in a situation with your family, some moral situation, maybe some situation at work where you're just going to have to take a stand and say, you know, there is right and there is wrong. There's this idea that there are no moral absolutes is insane. There, there is right and there is wrong and that is wrong and I'm not going to do that. I'm drawing the line here. I'm taking a stand right here. I'm going to hold my ground. That was the heart of David. He said, I'm going to hold my ground. I'm willing to serve and I'm willing to stand. That's where David was. And on that day as he stood, a giant fell and another emerged. He wasn't a giant in terms of his stature. He was just a teenage, baby-faced boy. But in his behavior and courage, David was the bigger man on that battlefield. He was willing to stand. Finally today, I want us to see this. He was willing to sacrifice. Now, we really don't find a lot of unbelief here in David's heart, do we? We find confidence. I don't think it was arrogance. I don't think this was some young punk, again, as I said, looking to knock off Goliath so that he can be the number one guy. That's not what it was all about. But, but we really find that uh, David was, was pretty confident as to what would take place. In 1 Samuel 17, 32, David went to Saul and said, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So David comes in before the king. He says, King, don't let anybody be upset. I'm here. I will fight him, okay? I don't think the king was feeling all that comforted by those words. So we read in 1 Samuel 17, 46, that David goes before Goliath, and he says, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. Pretty confident young man. Here's what I'm going to do. You know, but in the midst of all that, there is no doubt that David was aware of what a loss on that battlefield would have meant for him. It's, it's undeniable that there would have been an awareness if this goes other than the way I'm trusting it will go, it's going to be a bad day for me. 
But David was willing to step out of his comfort zone. He was willing to do what had never been done before. He was willing to go for a great victory for the Lord, to go in God's power. David was willing to sacrifice. To sacrifice. Friends, until you're willing to place yourself in a position in which you can lose, you'll never know what it is to gain a great victory. I'm saying the world may say, play it safe, swim in the shallow end, stay in that comfort zone. But God sometimes says, you know, you need to get out of that comfort zone. It's a good thing for us. Many of you have asked how the trip last week was, and it was great. And as I said, I'll talk a little more about it tonight, but... A bunch of young people on our trip. Dominican Republic's a beautiful country with with wonderful people. But our mornings would start. We'd prepare food and take it to a village and play with the kids, gather all the village around. We'd have a service and try to support the pastor there. It was was a great occasion. But man, it was hot. And, And impoverished situations. Less than comfortable. I thank God that my daughter's could observe that and get out of a comfort zone and see how God could use them, not just to help someone in a humanitarian way, that was part of it, but in a spiritual way. And that's a lesson. It's not just kids that need to learn. All of us at times learn how to insulate ourselves to the point of isolating ourselves. And, and David was the kind of person that said, you know, I'm not, my objective in life is not to play it safe. <laughs> I'm willing to sacrifice if that's what God asks of me. I want to live for God. Now, his trust in God did not remove the fact that fear accompanies all of us who enter into the battlefields of life. You see, fear and faith are polar opposites. They're they're at the other ends of each extreme. We think if I have fear, I must have no faith. But the reality is sometimes we have fear and faith. We live in these earth suits and our bodies, sometimes they, they sense these things, you know. I have no doubt that David, in the midst of all of this, had, had the butterflies, the anxiety. In fact, it was David later who wrote in Psalm 56 and verse 3, What time I am afraid, I'll trust in thee. I love that. He didn't say, God, because I trust in you, I don't fear. Nope. he said this, God, there are times in my life when I'm afraid. And in those moments, Lord, I want to trust in you. Not in me, not in my abilities, God. I want to trust in you. And I believe the heart of David as he approaches giant is, God, I'm getting ready to head out on a battlefield. I don't exactly know how it's going to turn out. In fact, if it turns out in a way other than I'm hoping it will, it's going to be really bad for me. But God, with this little bit of fear in my life, I want to give it to you. God, I'm afraid. Therefore, I want to trust in you. I want this all to be about you, God. Not for me. I was talking with my daughter, Julie, the other day. Her softball team made the playoffs, and we were just kind of talking about it a little bit. And She's not here today, so she won't hear this story, so don't tell her, okay? <laughs> Every now and then she'll do something funny, and she'll look at me and say, Dad, don't tell people that in a sermon, okay? And I said, okay. But uh, we were looking at the schedule, and she said, I think we could beat them. And, you know, boy, I don't, I don't think we could beat them. We're kind of going through and looking at it. And, and I sensed as a dad just an opportunity here to have a teaching moment. I love my children, and I don't, I don't presume to be a great dad, but I'll tell you this. I work hard at it, and I want to be. I desperately want to be. I'm a student of fatherhood. I want to be a good dad, and I sense this would be a great opportunity. Say something, okay? I said, Julie, let me tell you something. You're looking at this all wrong. 
you're already looking at a schedule saying, I think we can beat this team. I don't think we can beat this, this team. And you're, you're already discouraged about what it is that you think might happen. And I said, let me tell you something. There ought to be a little fire in your belly that gets cranked up a notch or two at the thought of playing a team that everyone else says is better than you are. What do they know? I said, that's a terrible attitude. I said, furthermore, what have you proven if you beat a team that has inferior talent than you? Big deal. So you beat a team that doesn't have the skills your team has. Big deal. You should have beat them. But I said, you really want to have some fun. You, fun. you locate one of those teams that's good. And you go out there and you play your best. And you see what it is that can happen. Well, they beat the team they should have beat, and then they played this other team. And uh, the attitude was right on game day. They came to this other team, and the rest of the story is they were annihilated by that team. <laughs> but look here, they competed well, and they had nothing to feel bad about, and their heart was right in it all. You know, sometimes on paper, the score seems very, very clear. But I want you to know the heart of a champion is, is different than how we might perceive an outcome to be. It's someone that enters into a situation and says, you know, I'm going to face things in life that are a lot bigger than me. And I'm not going to run from them. I'm not going to shy away from them. I'm not going to wimp out. I'm not going to let the crowd tell me what I should believe and what I shouldn't believe. I'm not even going to let my family dissuade me. If they're wrong, let them be wrong. I'm not going to let them control me. I'm going to take my cues in life from God. And if that puts me in the presence of giants, I'm going to sling it too and see what God can do. I'm talking about the heart, the heart of a champion. You see, the giant fell not because of that moment, but because years earlier we see a pattern of someone who's just a servant, who will take a stand, who's willing, if needs be, to sacrifice. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was recounting the history of Israel as he did, he talked a little bit about David in Acts 13 and 22. He said, when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. That's what God said. God said, you know, when I look at David, let me tell you what I like. It's not the fact that he knocked the giant down. It's the fact that he's got a heart after my own. He, he's a type of man, God would say, that's willing to do all my will. He had a heart that was willing to serve. He had a heart that was willing to stand. He had a heart that was willing, if needs be, to sacrifice. Now I wonder, is, is that your heart today? I believe that if we'll identify those attributes and allow them to emerge by faith in our life, that... We'll find through God the giants before us can be put aside to the glory of God. Our Father, thank you for the.